You are listening to audio from the Mariner campus of CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. Good morning. My name is Marty. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to welcome you to our service. A special welcome to those who are new or just checking us out. We're really glad you're here with us this morning. And over the last uh, several weeks, we have been in the middle of a series on the book of Acts. And our theme this week is pretty heavy. It's about the death of one of Jesus' followers. And this really fits with the time we are in, our, in, the, in the church calendar. And a lot of churches over the next week will be thinking and praying about the persecuted church and about the cost of being a follower of Jesus. And in a small way, when I was younger, I started to realize that in Canada, there is a social cost to being a follower of Jesus. When I was in my third year university at UBC in the mid-80s, I was a science student. And um, I was in a lab. It was a really complex lab. And my lab partner and I worked really well together. And then one day, my lab partner turned to me and he said, Christians are so stupid. And it was like out of the blue, and I was like, oh, and I said, hey, did you know I'm a Christian? And then there was a very long silence, and then he changed the subject. (laughs) But the, the first time I ever heard a Christian being disparaged was when I was in grade six. It was the mid 70s, and there was a boy a year older than me, and people, I was in a new school, and people were really mean to him. And I turned to a friend and I said, hey, why are they so mean to that guy? And she said, oh, he's a pastor's son. He's a Christian. And uh, that was really hard to hear. And I realized that my faith at that point was growing and it was going to be social suicide to be a Christian in my small town. And there was a recent study um, on religious freedom and it called this kind of um, disparagement a thousand little cuts. But these little cuts, these little comments that people make cause people of faith to remain silent about their faith. So I don't know if you've ever had a similar experience um, like me, but I assume some of you have. So in our story this morning, the Christians in Jerusalem are, are under pressure. They're under pressure to stay silent about their faith. And they, but these new believers, these new followers of Jesus, they refuse to be silent. They're committed to being witnesses for Jesus. And this word witness in Greek is martyr. And so this morning we're going to meet the first martyr of the church. We'll be looking at the story of Stephen. It's found in Acts 6 and 7. And Acts 7 records Stephen's sermon before this, the same religious council that judged Jesus. These are, this is a Sanhedrin. And in it, Stephen recounts how the Jewish people have failed to be faithful to the God of Israel over their history. And he ends his sermon by calling the Jewish leaders uh, resistors of the Holy Spirit. And he accuses them of betraying and killing the Messiah. And as you can imagine, they didn't take this very well. And so we're going to read our text together. It's found in Acts 7, verses 54 to 82. And if you want to stand with me, um, I will read it. Thank you. So, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. 
And at this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voice, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing of him. And there arose in that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this recounting of the life of Stephen. And we pray this morning that you will speak to us, that you will call us into faithfulness to you. In Jesus' name. Amen. So who is Stephen and why did he incite such wrath? And what enabled Stephen to be faithful to Jesus right to the end? So for a little bit of a background, in Acts 2, if you remember, if you've been here, the believers in Jesus were gathered together. They'd meet every day to pray and to uh, eat together, to worship, and they took care of their own. They, they pooled all their goods and they provided financially for everyone in their midst. By the time we get to Acts 6, the church is beginning to grow, and there are some new believers. They're called Hellenistic Jews. So they're still Jewish, but they were born abroad. They were born outside of the country. They don't speak the local language, Aramaic. They speak Greek. And so when they started to become Christians, they kind of felt on the outs. They felt marginalized. Their people, their widows, weren't being taken care of in the same way that the native Jewish widows were. And so they complained to the apostles. And the apostles are pretty busy, and they're like, we can't take care of everyone. And so they say to these Hellenistic Jews, appoint seven men who are well-respected to take care of the widows in your midst. And again, this isn't an illustrious job, but it was a really important one. And so seven men are appointed, and one of those men is Stephen. And it said, Luke describes Stephen in, in Acts 6.8. He says, Now Stephen, a man full of grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. And so Stephen sounds like an amazing man, someone you'd want to get to know and hang out with. But Stephen began to have some problems with other Hellenistic Jews. These are the Jews that weren't followers of Jesus. And these Jews begin to argue with Stephen about what he's preaching about. But the text says that Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit and his wisdom was so great that these um, people arguing with him couldn't win the argument. And Stephen threatens their sense of what is good and right and true. He threatens the things they trust in, their religious leaders, the law that God gave them. He threatens their temple and their belief that they have this unique relationship with God. And people don't like it when you challenge their beliefs. People in Canada don't like it when we challenge their beliefs. What are some things Canadians trust in and hold dear? Maybe things like freedom or self-expression or autonomy. And people feel uncomfortable when you have different ideas in them. Like my lab partner, whose view of science made Christianity seem implausible or scary to him. And so the leaders of the synagogue convinced the men to falsely accuse Stephen. Um, they lie about him and they charge him with speaking against Moses and God. They say things like, Stephen is threatening to destroy our temple and our customs. And so the leaders of the synagogue um, 
grab Stephen and they bring him before the Sanhedrin, this Jewish religious court, with these charges. And when the Sanhedrin looks at Stephen, they're drawn to something remarkable in his face. And Luke describes his face and says it was like the face of an angel. So now remember, angels are God's messengers. And God had given Stephen a message, the message of good, the good news of Jesus to speak in front of the Sanhedrin. And so the high priest asked Stephen if the charges against him are true. Now this story about Stephen is very reminiscent of when Jesus was brought before the Sanhedrin. And so Jesus was brought, when Jesus was brought to the Sanhedrin, the high priest asked Jesus, if you are the Messiah, tell us. But Jesus refused to answer their question. And when Stephen is asked this question, are these charges true about you? Stephen also refuses to answer their question. And instead, he launches into the longest sermon in the book of Acts. And so he, in his sermon, he, he describes the history of the people of Israel. He, he reminds them that Abraham, their father, was brought to the land of Israel and the land was given to him and how Abraham's great-grandsons did this terrible thing of selling their brother Joseph into slavery and as a result all the people of Israel were enslaved and then how God provided Moses uh, this this leader to lead them out of Egypt into the promised land and how the people of Israel didn't trust Moses and they fought against him and finally, uh, Stephen quotes Isaiah 66, 1 and 2, and says that the temple that they so trust in is not really God's dwelling place, but God is bigger uh, than the temple. And he calls the leaders stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart. This is a similar charge that Moses made to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 10, 16. And finally, he accuses the Jewish leaders of resisting the spirit of persecuting the prophets, of betraying and murdering the Messiah. And these are highly offensive charges to these leaders. And the Sanhedrin interrupts the sermon, and they don't let Stephen finish. And our translation says they are furious, but that literally means in, in Greek is their hearts were ripped open. It's kind of this visceral, emotional rage that they were feeling and they grind their teeth and again this is a sign of anger and it's often used in the bible for the anger of the wicked against the righteous so let's stop for a moment and imagine stephen there he is preaching the sermon telling the, the good news of jesus and he looks out and everyone in front of him is furious and they're clacking their teeth and i wonder if stephen felt afraid I wonder if he was tempted to stop speaking. Now, Luke doesn't tell us whether he's afraid or not, but Luke tells us that he looked up. And when he looked up, he saw this amazing vision. Luke says that Stephen, full of the Spirit, looks up and sees the glory of God and Jesus standing at his right hand. So here we have this contrast. The leaders of the Sanhedrin are full of anger and Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit. And Stephen has learned how to, how to trust in God. He's cultivated this relationship with God, Father, Son, and Spirit. He's learned how to live in the power of the Spirit. And so in this critical moment, he's able to stay faithful to God. And the, the filling of the Spirit is key to faithfulness in the Christian life. And the Apostle Paul instructs us in Ephesians 5 to keep being filled with the Spirit. 
And this isn't just a special filling for special people or at a one-time event, but it's something that is meant to be ongoing for the followers of Jesus. And the Christian life is dependent on the power of the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who teaches us and transforms us and tells us what to say and do. And in Stephen's story, the Spirit reveals to Stephen at this very critical moment the truth of who is on the throne of the universe. He doesn't need to fear his attackers because God is reigning and Jesus is standing at the right hand of God. Now it's interesting in Luke 22, 6, 69, as Jesus is standing before the Sanhedrin and refusing to answer that question, are you the Messiah? Instead, Jesus says this, but from now on, the son of man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. And this enraged the Sanhedrin as he said it. And here Stephen looks up and sees that what Jesus said about himself is true. And this title, Son of Man, is something Jesus called himself. And Jesus used, and it's used 25 times in Luke. And Stephen is the only other person in the whole of the New Testament to use this title for Jesus. And I think this means that, that Stephen wanted us to think back to this word that Jesus gave in front of the Sanhedrin. Jesus, the righteous one, is ruling with the Father. Jesus is standing at the right hand of God, this place of authority, in order to advocate for Stephen and to welcome Stephen home. Jesus comes to Stephen at the moment of his death. He doesn't abandon him, and he will not abandon us. Jesus is powerful, and he is active. And so Stephen turns to his attackers and he speaks with courage and he tells them what he sees. He says, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And this sent the Jewish leaders over the edge. And they cover their ears, they start screaming because they don't want to hear Stephen's blasphemy. And they drag him out of the city, they take off their coats and they hurl stones at him to kill him. But Stephen has the last word, and he kneels in a posture of prayer, and he continues to follow the example of Jesus. And you can't miss the similarity between Stephen's words and those Jesus spoke at the crucifixion. Luke wants us to see this. But there's one big difference. When, when Jesus prays, he prays to the Father, and when Stephen prays, he prays to Jesus. So in Luke 23, 46, Jesus calls out with a loud voice and says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prays, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Jesus commits his spirit to the Father and Stephen to Jesus. And then in Luke 23, 24, Jesus prays, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And in Acts 7.60, Stephen says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Jesus asks his father to forgive his persecutors, and Stephen asks his Lord Jesus. Luke's final words in describing this horrible, violent death are really interesting. He says, and when he said this, he fell asleep. And I think he, Stephen models for us an acceptance of his martyrdom with his eyes on Jesus. Stephen is worthy of our admiration. He has this passion for Jesus and his love for his people. He doesn't hold back from telling them the good news. He's committed to following the steps of Jesus and entrusting in the power of the Spirit. 
Now, Stephen's death is not the end. As we continue on at the beginning of chapter 8, we can see a couple things happening. First, Luke says that Saul approved of their killing of him. Now, Saul, who's later renamed Paul, becomes one of the leaders of the New Testament church and has written much of the New Testament. And in two weeks, we're going to hear more about Stephen's story in Acts 9, of how he met the resurrected Jesus and how his life was transformed. But here, Saul, who will become Paul, is standing and watching and approving of Stephen's death. And he's sharing in the guilt of that. And I wonder what impact the death of Stephen has on Saul. I wonder how he thought about Stephen's commitment to Jesus and and Stephen's final words. And Luke doesn't tell us. Stephen's death is also a pivotal moment for the church. And the church is ushered out of the city of Jerusalem and moves in the mission that Jesus gave the church. And so in Acts 1a, Jesus had said to the church, You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the remotest parts of the earth. And so this great persecution is the result of Stephen's death. And believers are forced to flee from Jerusalem. And they begin to spread the gospel around the ancient world. Stephen is the first follower who's killed for his faith. And we shouldn't be surprised about this. Because Jesus warned his followers that it was dangerous to follow him. In John 15, 20, he said, if they persecute me, they will also persecute you. And in Mark 8, 34, he said, you must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. And followers of Jesus are still dying for their faith. And that's why the church once a year focuses on gathering and praying for those around the world who are experiencing persecution. It's estimated that in the 20th century alone, more than 26 million believers died as martyrs. And now today, there's still 55 countries where it's dangerous, very dangerous to be followers of Jesus. One in seven believers or 360 million Christians around the world suffer significant uh, persecution for their faith. And for men, the five main types of persecution are Physical violence, psychological violence, economic harassment, um, imprisonment, or forced military service. And for women, it's sexual assault, forced marriage, physical violence, psychological violence, and house arrest. It's estimated that one in every 200 Christians alive today will die for Christ. So here we are in the West. We suffer very little for our faith perhaps, again, social discrimination, but we still have relative safety and privilege. And it's hard to imagine uh, the suffering of our brothers and sisters around the world because we're not at risk of losing our lives or our jobs or our homes. We receive tax benefits for donating to the church and our church receives tax exemptions. Serious persecution feels far off. This may change. This may change over the next several years. We don't know. But we do have um, people in our church where where they have come from countries where persecution has been commonplace. Now, if you were to be asked this question, would you keep following Jesus if your life and livelihood was threatened? How would you respond? 
And I think we all want to think, yes, we would. But it's hard to know because we actually have never been in that place. And so I don't want to leave us today with this just as a theoretical question. But I want to invite a member of our church, one of our pastors, Pastor Mehdi, to come up. Uh, he has had to face this question. Will I be faithful to Jesus if my life and livelihood are threatened? And so, Mehdi, come and join me and let's talk. Okay. So Mehdi, you uh, grew up in Iran, a place where it's illegal for someone with a Muslim background to convert to Jesus. Can you tell us a little bit of your story of how you came to faith and how your life changed? Good morning, CHRs. Uh, yes, uh, I was born in 1979 in Muslim uh, family in Tehran. And um, since I grew up, I had many, many questions in my mind. I, I started to ask questions from my parents, my teachers, and in, even uh, in university from our professors. For example, in Islam, I saw many strange uh, behavior and things in our country, Iran. For example, uh, when police arrested uh, girls because of different reasons, if you see media these days, you can see people protest, especially uh, teenagers and uh, youth in Iran because of hijab, and police immediately kill them just because of scarf and hijab. So uh, when they arrested virgin girls the night before execution, they uh, raped those girls, and it was really painful for me, and uh, I asked my parents, why are they killing and rape those girls, virgin girls? And uh, when I saw that uh, people convert their religion in Iran, they were allowed to kill them, or other religion in Iran, police destroyed their houses and kicked them out of the country. So it was my question, and I told myself, I don't want to worship this God who's uh, give permission and teaching followers to kill others, that's not real God. So I try to find the real God and worship because I believe when we have good relationship with God, we can have good relationship with people. So I said, okay, let's build good relationship with God and then other peoples. So I tried when uh, I was around 20 years uh, old, uh, I used to work for Korean embassy in Tehran. and. I decided to find God myself. I attended synagogue, uh, but it wasn't my shoes. Other religion temples, it wasn't my shoes. I tried to attend church, but they didn't accept me and didn't let me go in because uh, police killed eight pastors of those churches because they accepted Muslim backgrounds. And unfortunately, 10 years ago, police closed all the Protestant Persian churches in Iran. So uh, once I tried to find God, and attend churches, other temples. I couldn't, uh, but uh, once, few days later, one of our uh, supervisor in Korean embassy called me and said, Mehdi, my driver is sick and can't take me to the church. Can you come and help me? I said, yes, that's good sign from God. <laughs> Finally, I can go and uh, go inside of the church and see how believers and Christians worshiping Jesus. So I went there. It was Korean language worship and message. I didn't understand anything, but the atmosphere was wonderful, wonderful. And I never had this experience, and uh, I could feel Holy Spirit, and it was touching for me. It was amazing feeling. Because of that, I asked the, uh, those uh, pastors, and 
my supervisor can I come to this church again regularly every week? They accepted and they told me it was strange for them. You don't understand our language. Why you want to come? I said, no, that feeling is amazing for me. Fantastic feeling. So uh, after one year, the pastor uh, came to me and said, Pastor Kim was Korean. In Farsi language, he started to talk with me. I was surprised. He was in Iran for 28 years and in Farsi told me, why you are coming to our church? If you want, I can introduce you to other Persian church. And uh, because police killed their pastor, they didn't accept you, but I can introduce you. So the first day I attended Persian church, it was Persian worship and message. I could uh, worship Jesus in my mother tongue, in my language. I felt that I'm like bird on sky. <laughs> it was wonderful feeling. And in that day, I knelt down and I accepted Jesus as a Lord and uh, Savior. I started Alpha course immediately, and then after that, other theology classes in that church. But in Iran, uh, they are not allowed to baptize uh, new believers. So for 20 years, uh, sorry, for 12, 13 years, it was my wish and pray to be baptized, but unfortunately, we couldn't. And then many problems uh, happened to me. My wife and I had to move from Tehran to Kermanshah, the Kurdish area west of Iran, and we started serving underground churches in that city. Okay. So, Manik, how did you eventually get baptized? How did that impact your life? And what kept you faithful to Jesus in the midst of that? Yeah, our pastor, I wanted to be committed uh, to the church, and uh, uh, loyalty was very important for me. So, I told my pastor, I reborn in this church, and you are my pastor. I want to be baptized by you. Unfortunately, police in that time arrested our pastor, and uh, he was in the jail for 40 days. And after 40 days, when uh, they released him, he lost half of his weight. And then uh, immediately he fled Iran to uh, Malaysia. And he was in Malaysia, started serving refugee, Persian refugee in Malaysia and Indonesia. And uh, once we had a conversation, he told me, if you can come to Malaysia, I will baptize you. So when I went there, uh, I got baptized, and then I asked him, can I send my underground church members one by one to Malaysia and uh, get baptized, and he accepted. So when I came back to Iran, to Kermanshah, and told my church members that God finally opened the door, uh, it was very good news and encouraging for believers in, uh, in that time. Mm -hmm. So we could send them to Malaysia. But uh, for government, for police in Iran, that means that you completely convert uh, to Christianity, and they are allowed to arrest you or even kill you. So they called me for interrogation, and I was in the jail for, uh, I remember, five, six days. Uh, so hungry, cold, feel alone, and uh, they didn't let me sleep. I was so tired, and it was a small cell. And when you are alone for five, six days, tired, sleepy, and hungry, it's close to broken you. And the only things they asked me, deny Jesus, and then go back to normal life. I had to choose, stay on my face, or uh, deny Jesus, and then they promised me that I, uh, they send me back to Tehran, nice work, nice income, vacation out, uh, outside of Iran. I had to choose. 
I felt, uh, I could remember in that time, Jesus, when uh, was the last night was with the disciples in garden and asked them, please, um, uh, don't sleep, wake up and pray with me, but they couldn't. Uh, I felt Jesus was alone. I'm alone now. I, uh, uh, I need more strength. So, Holy Spirit, come and give me more strength to stand on my face. I have good relationship with God. I have good relationship with people. I organize a team for helping adults in uh, nursing house and uh, uh, feeding uh, poor people. Even now, Persian ministry feeding homeless hot meal in downtown Vancouver. It was my wish. I have good relationship. Why I have to deny Jesus? Give me more strength to stand on my face. And um, the next day, they treated me and they said, we arrested your wife and we want to rape your wife in front of your eyes. Sign the regret letter, then we release you or maybe anything happened to you, your wife and your church members. But I said no. Uh, maybe I stop right now our activities in church, but I can't. I don't want to deny uh, Jesus. I believe Jesus. And if you want to kill me, that's fine. Uh, when everybody is saying we are ready to sacrifice for Jesus, but when you are in that step, that situation, it's really, really difficult. They treat you, something happened to your wife, your kids, your daughters, or your church member, that's big responsibility. But they released me after six days, and uh, my brother-in-law was lawyer assistant uh, in that time, and uh, he called us and said, they have permission to arrest and put you in the jail for 10 years. It's better for you to leave the country. So we fled from Iran to Turkey, and we were in Turkey for six years as a refugee. Okay. So Mehdi, what was it like in Turkey, and when you were there, did you regret your decision to follow Jesus? Yeah, when we arrived in Turkey, we didn't have any money, even money for renting a, a house. Uh, so uh, in that time, I thought, because of my face, I lost everything. Should I again stand on my face and my belief or just deny and I can have normal life in their eyes and nice life? But I said no. Uh, maybe I lost other things, but now I have good relationship with God, which is very joyful for me. I prefer this relationship with God and with people. Serving Jesus is uh, so precious for me, more than other things I lose. So uh, uh, God again uh, um, provided us uh, Lighthouse Church in Turkey, our partner in Turkey, uh, called me and gave me loan, and then we uh, rented house. And uh, yeah, it was very difficult, but I never regret. It was my best decision in my life, and I never regret about that. Jesus is my savior and my uh, my Lord uh, uh, up to the end of my life. Hmm. So, Mehdi, how can we be praying for? Uh, believers in countries 